Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome back to Between the Banners, your UNC basketball podcast on the Tar Heel Blog podcast, hosted by TarHeelBlog.com on the SBNation.com podcast network. You found us, don't lose us. Subscribe to us wherever you're hearing us right now. If you're a really generous soul, you're going to go to Apple Podcasts. You're going to leave us a five-star review, and I will read it on the air. My name is Chad Floyd. I am joined by two of the OGs of the Tar Heel Blog podcast, Jake Lawrence and Al Hood. And that's really where the good news ends, guys. Uh, We're going to break down UNC's collapse against Duke and talk about what happens now going forward. Um... If you heard a little bang at the very beginning there, it's because I was so still distraught here 48 hours later that I kicked over a trash can at my desk while introducing this podcast. Al, man, you're first up. Um, What's going on? And what are your initial thoughts about how do we go about recording this podcast? Because I'm really out of ideas. I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, just that – that game was just a microcosm of the season. It just started with hope. Things, a lot of things went well. Then, um, and yet there was just this nagging fear that it was just going to all go. It was all going to going to go all horribly wrong at some point. And then at the end of the first half, when or at the end of the second half, when it started going horribly wrong, we all knew it was coming. And then just to have your the heart ripped out twice with uh, them going down five in overtime and getting a lead again uh, and surrendering that and then essentially losing on two buzzer beaters. Um, you know, it just, it's, I mean, the the only solace I took is that, you know, Duke needed two buzzer beaters to beat the worst team they, the, the worst Carolina team they've faced in two decades. So um, there's at least some solace in that, but the, that's just, that's that's really searching for a silver lining in a very deep, deep, deep cloud. Yeah, the cloud is uh, made deeper just from the fact that, you know, this is four times now in conference play alone where they've blown a double-digit lead in the second half. And at some point, it becomes what we call a systemic issue where the team does not have the belief it can close out games. Jake Lawrence, uh, you were – a man in our Slack channel to declare the game over when Vernon Carey fouled out. Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but what was your takeaway? And uh, yeah, I'm not going to old take expose you on that one, but that was something you said. No, I mean, it was something I said, and I think anyone, I don't think I would have been alone uh, in that thought, but I mean, here's the bottom line. And I've, I've tweeted this this year too, and I haven't really written extensively because of regular life getting in the way, but I mean, look, this is the dumbest UNC team I think we have ever watched, and from a basketball IQ standpoint. And they lack any sort of confidence. They have no idea how to close a game out. 
They make some of the absolutely most boneheaded plays when the games are on the line or even when they have a lead and they're just trying not to, you know, shake in their shoes. So um, I thought that with Vernon carry out, I thought at a minimum, even our boneheaded plays or North Carolina's boneheaded plays, I thought that they would be able to expose serious mismatches. Now, to Duke's credit, they went small and, and North Carolina has some issues. And part of that's because North Carolina, I mean, they're just severely depleted. Um, and there's, they were limited in what they could do and how they could respond. Uh, but, I mean, look, Cole Anthony left 30 seconds on the shot clock in the final two minutes. They missed four free throws in the final 71 seconds. So uh, even with all of that, uh, that went on, they still were in a position to win. And sometimes, I mean, look, the two Duke, the two Duke buzzer beaters were, um, they were, we may never see those again, or we may not see those for another 50 years. That is what it is. Uh, the North Carolina did this to themselves and they've done it all year long. So that's the most, that's the more frustrating for me was they've been in the situation before, uh, multiple times and they continue to find ways to do it, uh, and continue finding ways to give the game away. And they're just, they're just a dumb, dumb team yeah for, uh for me you know I, I was at the clemson game where the team looked panicked and granted they didn't have any of their top three point guards active for that game um they looked a lot more panicked at the end of this one just where you know they had played so well and composed for the first 36 minutes of the game and this is without you know it would be I'd be remiss not to mention uh, the lack of Brandon Robinson as, you know, the lone senior on this team. But Vernon Carey went out and spread the floor, and Carolina didn't really have an answer. And once the pace picked up, Carolina almost seemed like they wanted to match that. And Cole Anthony, I'm not going to, you know, discredit him for ruining the chemistry or anything like that that, you know, people have said after Carolina, air quotes, figured it out after his 11-game absence and, you know, beat two bad teams in Miami and NC State. But uh, Anthony did rush that floater. Um, he left some time on the shot clock on another one, as you mentioned, Jake. It's just a team that, you know, when the clock hits four minutes, they just panic. And I don't really know what the answer for that is, but is it a coaching thing? Is it just an experience thing? Uh, Jake, since you had the freshest take on it, I'll go back to you on that. Uh, what What's going on there? Um, I think it's, I, I think it's, Three things, and I'll keep the first two short. Uh, there is a chemistry issue, but I don't think it's because there's a dislike or even necessarily a distrust. I think there's just uncomfortableness about it. And when you've had as many rotations as North Carolina's had, and you've had as many point guards as they've had, different lineups as they've had, there's you know, you're, this is the time of year when North Carolina has worked through all those kinks. This is when we see them starting to hit their stride traditionally. They have been so discombobulated. They have really never been able to string more than two games together to where they can work through some of those things. So against Clemson, Leaky Black was the point guard. Um, against Boston College, it was Cole's first game back. Uh, against um, Florida State, they go up by nine. Jeremiah Francis comes in and everything. I mean, and I love the kid, but everything in the final two minutes of the first half goes wrong. So it's all it's been a little bit of everybody at different times. Um, it's there's an argument to be made that, look, Roy has not been good this year. Um, he has made some interesting calls. He's There have been some, some late some late game situations that have not been um, – that could have or should have been handled differently. But here's the flip side to that, is that what more do you want him to do? He doesn't call timeout for six seconds ago in Clemson. In reality – I'm sorry, he, couldn't, he didn't foul six seconds ago against Clemson. In reality, 
that he couldn't foul because North Carolina wasn't in position to foul at that point. They got they got their clock clean on a play that didn't work out. He goes zone against Pittsburgh for a long stretch of time. Pittsburgh scores two field goals in the final 15 minutes. But because North Carolina's philosophy is to use their defense to force their offense, they aren't able to get any points and close the gap despite keeping you know Pitt to only I think one or two field goals in those final 15 minutes against Duke. Uh, I mean, what do you do when your when your team misses 17 free throws? So to some degree, I don't know what else could be done because uh, he's he, at different points during the season he's tried everything, um, and at some point it's just about the execution and the talent on the floor. Uh, and there's like there's a flip side to both of those arguments both ways, and I I definitely think there were some times when some things could have been done differently. But by and large, when you look at the philosophy that he has and the way he coaches these teams. Um, it's hard to it's hard to put a lot of blame there because we've seen it work so well for so long. Yeah, I'm I'm a process over results guy, and you know the process against Clemson was bad, where they did not foul, or you know where, as he said in the post game, he forgot to tell them to foul. They executed about. I mean, it wasn't perfect. They left four and a half seconds on the clock for Trey Jones uh, at the end of the Duke game, but you know, Roy learned from the previous mistake and was not going to get caught with his pants down again. Now, you see a situation where, like, Boston College at the end of the game, they uh, went zone and the heels didn't really have an answer late, and Carolina left three timeouts on the table for that. Uh, Duke, Yeah, you know, that was a bad to, one, too. Yeah, Duke switched to zone a little bit uh, in the last two minutes, but Carolina was still able to at least move the ball around and get shots off, which we're going to go to positives here in a second. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, that's why I kind of teed you up for that question is I'm not so sure that it is coaching and that, you know, other teams do have kind of a plan B and a plan C. Uh, Carolina doesn't really have that luxury because they haven't had a healthy team all season to practice. Hey, you know, if a team does X, we're going to do Y. You know, it's basically Carolina has the one punch because these players have not practiced together. I mean, Brandon Robinson was out for the first four games of the season. Uh, Anthony Harris played five games. Uh, Jeremiah Francis has missed 10. Cole Anthony missed 11. The primary ball handlers on this team have literally not played together. Um, Al, would you agree with kind of the premise that it could be more of that factor? Or do you think there's uh, some coaching to blame as well? It's both. It's both because a really a good coach, a really good coach would have been able, even as bad as the injuries have been, better coaching could still have probably fixed some of these issues. It does seem like he was maybe a little bit, and, and you know, to some extent it's because Roy has just, this has been an unprecedented, unprecedented situation for Roy. But to say he completely escapes flame out of this, I think is just it is being a little unfair. Um, partly because at the very center of it, he's the one who brought the players in. He's the, he's the one who brought the two grad transfers in that haven't quite worked out the way that we wanted them to. Um, he's the it, it took him up until this past week to say, hey, you know what? We're having ball making uh, hand, ball making decision issues. Maybe we should try practicing with a 15 second shot clock to speed ourselves yeah, up. Yeah, I'm, Al, I'm, I'm surprised it took us that long, or took them that long to give that a try. That, that was, yeah. that was a surprise to me. That, see that, and that's the thing. It's like that was a great idea. And you know what? As I think, what the reason why this loss is such a gut punching, and at some point we'll talk about the refs, 
because they factored into this and I'm not a blame the ref type of guy, but um, I think the real, like, you get your heart ripped out twice and then you get a gut punch when you realize that if they've been playing like this the whole year, if they've been playing at this tempo, if they've been playing at something closer to recognizable Carolina tempo all season, if he had adapted to do something like this earlier in the season, that this doesn't bring them down to, this doesn't bring them to a near impossibility of making the NCAA tournament. It brings them to the point to where their only chance of making the NCAA tournament is winning the ACC tournament. They're, this brings them to maybe a middling 500 to where folks are like, oh, well, now that they're starting to get players back, they looked really good against Duke. And maybe we should consider Carolina a different team now. That narrative completely changes. Um, but when you, it's, it's the problem with Virginia. You know, when you play a slower tempo, you can't run away on teams and you get yourself prone to where when the offense struggles, um, a team that you have dominated against can easily come back against you. Um, so it, so that is definitely something that you can blame him for. And I don't feel bad doing that because if you sit down and you talk to Coach Williams, one of the great tenets of Williams is that he is very – he will blame himself more than he blames the players. He will. And if, um, and I bet you that when he's dissecting this season, he's going to, he's going to say to himself that, man, there are definitely things I could have done better as a coach. Now you can also say that and also say that it's because it is an unprecedented situation for him. It is something this is something he has never had to deal with before. He is stubborn in his ways, and that stubbornness probably contributed to how slow he was to adjust to do something like this. One hundred percent. But doesn't mean that the game has passed him by. Doesn't mean that he needs to go away. Doesn't mean that he is a bad coach. None of that at all. It is an amazing feat for as horrible as this season has gone for the team to have come out the way that they did and play that game to where when hardly any fan had any reason to have any sort of hope on Saturday to be in a position to where they could get their heart ripped out twice. So, yes. I mean, you know, and, he, he, go ahead, Jake. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely well, some rambling parts here. Well, no, I was, I was going to say, I mean, the other part of that too is, Look, throughout the season, this team has not quit. And it goes into Saturday, but Virginia Tech, double overtime. Clemson, overtime. I mean, this is a team that could have packed it in. And so if we're going to blame some of the X's and O's or some of the philosophy stuff, which I do think are fair game, even if they have two sides of the coin to argue there, he has kept this team engaged through all of the ups and downs, the adversity, and they have been in a majority of these games, which adds that frustration of, if this isn't the 8-20 and 20 season, this is a North Carolina is – four bounces of the ball from being, you know, 14 and 10 middle of the pack ACC and a threat to be dangerous late when everyone gets healthy. And that's the frustrating part, but Roy deserves credit for keeping this team engaged like that as well going forward or, or throughout this year. And I think that kind of adds that frustration, um, but also should be credited because a lot of teams would have packed it in by now. Uh, and I think that kind of goes to the overall philosophy that he has and probably goes to your process over results, Chad, that you were talking about uh, at the beginning. I mean, I yeah. was, I had just graduated college in that eight and 20 season. That was a seat. That was a team that gave up. And honestly, the 2003 team, the season that brought Doherty down, that was a team that had given up. Like this is it. There is a difference between being dumb basketball IQ wise and continually 
suffering and giving up leads and still getting up the will to get up and fight. And you have to give them credit for that. And if they somehow manage to put Saturday behind them and they go and they go against Wake Forest tomorrow and they they use it as a positive, then, I mean, all credit in the world to them because they would have every reason in the world at this point to just say, okay, the season's over. Yeah, and, and to go back to a point, I mean, th- this is probably about five minutes ago now, but it's kind of hard to push tempo when you do have a guy who hasn't played basketball in three years in Francis and Leaky Black, who is, you know, at this point, I'll say he's not point guard. Um, it's hard no, to do that because, because when, you, when you have a low IQ team, you know, the last thing you want to do is maximize possessions when you're forcing them to do something that makes them uncomfortable where you might have 25 turnovers in a game with a but team that doesn't really the have the offensive firepower to. Yeah, but counter to the counter of that, Chad, I mean, you're trusting. So you then turn around with the guy, yes, Cole Anthony is a point guard, but he just hit the double digits in terms of being a point guard and is coming off of a knee surgery. So, like, how – And he's a freshman. (laughs) And he's a freshman. He's a freshman. I mean, regardless of his talent, he's a freshman. And we saw – I mean, the Duke game was a clear indication of the difference in someone with a year under their belt who is is an elite point guard coming into college and someone who has all the athletic ability in the world – but is still learning how to be a basketball player. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, you know, I mean, it basically becomes a situation of do you double down and, you know, well, I mean, it can't really get much worse at this point, but do you double down, which I think he did after the Florida State game where they decided to go back to tempo, and I think you saw that for the first 36 minutes of the game, or do you, you know, do what you can to have the team tread water while Anthony was out and, while you know the rest of the team was trying to find itself and and i can see arguments both sides um but i feel like that kind of segues us into some of the positives and the first one is one we haven't really touched on yet but with the two grad transfers uh justin pierce and christian keeling i've been jokingly calling for a christian keeling breakout uh that has not happened for about the first half of the acc season but those that uh little pump fake and uh, pull into the mid-range where he hit three in a row in the first half. That was exactly what I expected from him coming into the season. And you have that, you have Pierce hitting a couple big shots towards the end of the first half and playing at least competent defense for, well, fits and starts during the Duke game. Uh, We'll start with that and we'll just kind of see, you know, what positives can we take away? Because at the end of the day, this is probably a 10-game season for UNC at this point. Maybe they get hot. Um, I think I told you all pre-show that my dad still thinks this is a tournament team, which I don't really see how that's going to happen. But, uh, Al, I'll start with you. You know, what were some of the positives besides I think we hit on a lot of them where this team has not quit, uh, where they do seem to be growing and hitting, you know, for relative terms, let's call it their stride uh, here late in the season as Roy Williams teams do. Um. I think that for the vast majority of that game, uh, the game that you saw out of Cole Anthony was the antithesis of what people had been kind of expecting out of him. Um, He was moving. He was distributing. um, The offense flowed. It didn't seem like he was trying to be – it didn't seem like he was trying to be selfish with the ball. He was actually trying to – he was actually trying to facilitate – Dude got a – I mean, he led the team in minutes on the floor. I mean, his, what, 
third game back from the knee injury, played 43 out of 45 minutes, um, 24 points, 11 rebounds, uh, four assists. Um, he was mostly steady at the free throw line. Um, you know, that was the, that was the type of game that if we, if he had been healthy all year, he basically showed it, that you would have definitely been getting that by now from him. Um, and it just, it, you know, it's a little sad because it does again, remind you what kind of season that it was, but like you see him in that game and you realize that this was the, this was the type of guy that, um, that we, that Carolina definitely had been wanting to get out of him. And then once, you know, once, uh, the big started fouling out and Caroline just started dealing with foul trouble. Uh, he showed the fact he showed he was being a freshman. He, you know, Jake already pointed out some of the mistakes that he made and, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the results in the end of the game was definitely on him, but, you know, Kobe White definitely struggled at moments last year too. And he ended up playing a full season at point guard. So uh, I think we have to at least allow for a little bit of those mistakes. So, um, if there's, if anything, uh, the rest of the season should be fun to see if this is the Cole Anthony we're getting the rest of the year. Um, it, it should at least be fun to see, uh, how this, that, that at least the end of the season may start to look like traditional Carolina basketball. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, we'd go on positives, but Anthony did look gassed the last four minutes of regulation. Uh, you know, Duke spread the court and Tyus Jones was able to beat him off the dribble, which he hadn't really been doing prior to that during the game. I don't know if that was a spacing issue. Uh, Jake, I'll ask you about that. And then I'll ask you, you know, what positives did we see and what can Carolina do to move forward and at least salvage a respectable season? It's not going to be a good season. It, it can still be respectable. It can be respectable. Um, I mean, in regards to the Cole and, and Trey uh, issue is, look, Cole, I mean, Cole was playing with three and four fouls, and uh, they were missing some key people that they needed with fouls down towards the end, uh, a late, in, late, in, late in regulation overtime as well, Leaky, uh, Baycott, and all that. So I think it was really more of they were trying not to give up threes, and they were trading twos for threes. And typically that works if you hit your free throws. Um, and they had, and the, even though North, even though Duke had only hit three or four threes at that point, they had hit two of their last four, and their small lineup had been had done the damage. So I, I just think it was a matter of he may have been a little bit tired, uh, but I also think he was a little bit worried about giving up those fouls. And, and I get that with that kind of lead, um, it makes sense. You hit your free throws, not an issue. Uh, however, as far as other positives, you mentioned Keeling and Pierce, and look. North Carolina system takes some time to learn, and people have got to find their role in that. And Keeling has probably struggled with the physicality and the pace of play at this level. Pierce has been about what I figured he would be, but I think Pierce has been forcing additional playing time because Manley never got healthy, forcing more time for Brooks down to five. So there's a trickle-down effect that I think that, that hurts some of their some of their growth and development uh, during you know during the early part of the year. Uh, but seeing that come through is good. And then the other part of that that I'm really encouraged by is Leaky Black finally getting a move to the wing, get out of that whole point guard experiment and be able to use his skills appropriately as he can find what he's going to be good at going into next year. Um, and I get why he would play the point guard as much. He had to, I understand Roy has said before he recruited him as point guard. There were rumors that he was actually going to move Leaky to the backup point guard position at some point next year. But guys, I mean, you said earlier, Chad, we've watched Leakey at this position now for approximately a season's worth of games when you consider the fact that he missed half of last season. And just because he's getting better does not mean that he's better than mediocre at that position. 
Um, he is best at the wing where he can use his length on the defensive side of the ball. He can crash the glass, and he's good enough to initiate transition off the rebound. But when you put him in a half-court set, he doesn't have the explosion, ball-handling ability, any of that stuff you need from a point guard. So now that Cole is back, you can look, you can, we can hopefully watch Leakey grow and grow comfortable on that wing and develop um, an understanding of what he is good at, find some strengths and weaknesses that can help springboard him into next year as a junior where he'll be one of the one of the old heads on the squad when we get five freshmen that are coming in. Uh, and to me, I'm interested to see that because I think that's where Leaky Black is going to be the best uh, long-term, uh, and that way this can take some of that pressure off him so he can just learn how to play. Yeah, and he did some nice things uh, distributing the ball from the wing. Uh, I, I go back to a play in the first half where Duke put some pressure on Cole, so uh, I think Brooks inbounded to Black, and I might have this wrong, but he – hit uh, Baycott with a dime from 50 feet for an easy uh, dunker layup. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of what you hope for. And that's what Roy Williams has had basically for 30 years, where you have two guys who are capable of pushing tempo and pushing the ball up the court and getting easy baskets. So, you know, there are definitely flashes from him at the wing. And I, I don't mean to disparage, you know, his effort or his skill as a point guard. He's, not a point guard, but he is a very capable wing. And that, I, I do think that you're going to see him kind of emerge as the leader on the next great Carolina team, whether that's next year or the year after. But, oh, man, yeah, the point guard experience, uh, you know, it was a choice that was forced, but uh, it was it was an interesting choice. Um, guys, yeah, we, I mean, I, we, we, we've talked about it offline. Like, I, I, I don't – I get K.J. Smith. I know he was a walk-on. He got a scholarship. But – he has been better or as good as Leaky Black has been a point guard position for five to seven to ten minutes at a time this year. And that that's one of those one of those coaching issues that I would have liked to have addressed, you know, halfway through the year of allow Leaky to have the mismatch on the wing and ride or die with KJ for short stints. Um, because I think that that was not as bad as what it looked like at times either. But, you know, that's another thing altogether. Yeah, uh, last thing on this one, Al, you made reference to it about 15 minutes ago, so I'm just going to let us cook. There was a time with about 12 minutes left in the game where I said, hey, the refs are really letting these guys play. Um, you know, I'm, I, I was enjoying <laughs> the fact that I didn't really it. notice it. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is actually one way to put it. They they let them play for sure. Uh yeah. Um, uh, so Garrison Brooks gets poked in the eye. He's questionable for, as you're listening to this tonight's game at Wake Forest. Um, but yeah, go, go ahead and preach on the refs as we just saw Matt Hurt pretty much demolish a guy with an elbow and Florida State get called for a foul in a pivotal moment of the Duke Florida State game, which Duke won 70 to 65. All right. So the usual caveat, Carolina hits two more free throws, either in regulation or overtime, they win. They play just a little bit better defense on down the stretch of either period. They win. Um, there, there are 10,000 things that you can point to to say that they win. So to say that the refs solely cost Carolina the game is not true. Um, and this is not from this is not going to be the bitterness of saying, well, they, they're the only reason why Carolina lost. Now that that's out of the way, if the refs had actually done their job, Carolina wins that game. Um, Two horrendous calls. Trey Jones with one of the most obvious push-offs in the history of recorded 
push-offs in college basketball, one that is so bad that even Jake will say that, yeah, they should have called that. Um, and I love contact. Not, I love physicality. That was out of line. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it wasn't a case where it was, it was, you know, it was clogged the lane. It happened with eight other players around them. The refs couldn't see what was going on. It was one-on-one. Like, it was pretty clear what happened there. And, uh, you know, credit to ESPN for getting the overhead backboard shot to be able to show just how bad it was. Um, so that's two points the other way, possibly free throws. Like, that. that's one thing. Um, the Coast charge was a joke, which fouled him out. That was a joke. Having him in for longer stretches at the end of the game would have been huge if he had had one, that one less foul. Um, there was zero contact. It was one of the worst flops that a Duke player has committed, which is saying something. Um, and it wasn't a charge in the first place because of the, because of the process. And then, of course, one that was so bad that even Billis went off for five minutes about how bad it was with the no call on the Playtech, um, the Playtech booting out of bounds play, which Playtech maybe maybe Playtech doesn't hit the free throws. He was having trouble. He was short arming or arming them. But you know what happens? There, the ball is on the other end of the court, and Duke has to rebound and they have to bring the ball up and they have to do it in a rush. It completely changes the process from there. So, you, you know, the biggest compliment that you want to give an official is that they don't make themselves a part of the game and that they were not noticed. Um, any one of those calls officiated correctly uh, changes the specter of the game and probably results in Carolina at least having a chance to win, uh, a chance to tie, or winning the game. And that they didn't, and that the ACC had said nothing about it is disgraceful. And um, I don't know what we can do about it because it just, it, it's just, it is getting bad. It is just really getting bad because supposedly this was the best crew that the ACC could offer to put in this game. You're putting your best officials in an ACC Duke marquee game that is, was the highest watched uh, college basketball game all season. Uh, you know, you're putting your officials in a spotlight for this one, and it was not a good look for the officials at all. I'll just say to your last point, uh, Kentucky and Louisville, y'all think y'all have the best uh, rivalry in college basketball. Y'all had half of the viewership uh, nationwide, and Carolina and Duke usually play three times a season. So y'all suck. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I'm I'm never going to be one to blame the officials because generally, I mean, you look at the NFL, you look at uh, – we dealt with Ron Cherry for years. Uh, I mean, you – Every conference. He gave them the business. Every conference, Sorry. every league. Oh, you're fine. Every conference, every league. I'm, I'm just rolling my eyes at Ron Cherry. Um, they all think they have the worst officials, and they all basically do. I mean, Tim Donaghy was on the take from the NBA for 20 years. Um, um, there, there, there were bad calls on both sides, but just for calls that have such a profound impact on the game, you know, just – the cumulative effect where UNC doesn't have five guys that they can put on the court because Christian Keeling's in the locker room when Leaky Black fouls out. You know, you, you, you call a game a certain way for 30 minutes and then you change the tempo and change the pace of the game. I think Akil uh, might have written on this on Tar Heel blog, but, you know, there are only 18 fouls called in the first half and there are about 
uh, I want to say maybe 35 uh, in the second half and overtime. And just, you know, I mean, even going back to the UNC Gonzaga National Championship game, when you change course on how you're going to call a game midway through the game, it changes literally everything about the game. Uh, Jake, do you have anything to add on this? Because I'm not going to no, single handedly. Yeah. No, I mean, un- until they start. When, until they start grading and evaluating these officials on a little bit of common sense and taking some intangibles like game flow into the equation, the rules are written in a sense where the officials have really good cover. And, you know, the only time that we ever hear about uh, – the only time we hear, ever hear about how these officials are graded or evaluators when someone might go on, you know, the Carolina Insider podcast or whatever and start explaining, well, this is what we do and this is how we do it. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to protect the shield when, you know, you're not held accountable to anybody else. Uh, and that's the way this works. And, you know, after every game, these guys are graded and they're evaluated and they're given, you know, they're, they're given a score. Um, and there's there's usually very little that's given to them based on the flow of the game and consistency. And this is the call in the first couple of minutes, the same as the call with 10 minutes to go in the game. Um, and they're not held accountable. Uh, and I get it. Look, being official is really, really hard. Um, and they're never going to get it right. And I don't think that these officials go into this thinking that they're going, you know, that they're trying to screw it up or they're trying to mess up. I think they really do want to give give their best effort for the most part. But you do have some personalities that have clearly bought into themselves, and they've been allowed to they've been allowed to grow into something other than what's good for the game. And that you know they love the attention. You know, Jamie Lucky is one of them. Mike Eads is a little bit. Eads is a little bit different. He's he's inconsistent from half to half, but you know, and he likes to be seen on television. But he rarely. I don't have any memorable game calls of him, you know, really trying to influence the game the way you do TV Teddy or Jamie Lucky or someone like that. Um, and, but look, the ref problem has been around forever. You know, there were, there were those in the eighties and the nineties. Um, you know, now we have this current batch, but the bigger problem is they're just not held accountable. Um, and when they are, it's, you know, they whine about it and they go do interviews talking about how this isn't what I thought it was or, you know, whatever, whatever Teddy did after he, you know, was suspended for a while after the way he treated Joel Berry because he went whining and he said, I don't think I'm going to do this again when he comes back and does it. I mean, until these guys start holding each other accountable and there's actual ramifications for game-changing and season-changing calls, uh, it's not going to change. And in, while, as long as we keep watching, it's not going to change because there's no incentive to change. Um, and it's just kind of the way it is at this point. Yeah, and like I said, you can take this to any league. I mean, there there's no accountability for baseball umps, and you have Joe West and you know Eric Gregg and the Jake. I know you're a Braves fan, so the infamous uh, 1997 NLCS. You know, there, yep. there's no accountability because you know these these guys basically get on the payroll, and you know they are company men, and they get to do what they want to do, really. Um, so I'm I'm not gonna waste too much more time on that uh we're, we're gonna look ahead just a little bit the heels have a game at wake forest like i said as uh you listen to this tonight um jake are the heels gonna beat wake uh, i don't know it depends if garrison brooks plays um look they're both 10 and 13 wake is not a good team but they've probably been a little bit better than we expected um and it depends on which carolina team shows up and if they can play for 40 minutes so i'm optimistic but you know, I'm also a realist at this point, and I don't think any game is a given anymore. So maybe. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say. Al, does the team that showed up against Duke, uh, assuming it shows up against Virginia next Saturday, do they win? Can they? Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> that's, you know, that I, 
you know, the team that um, the team that showed up on the team that showed up for the majority of Saturday uh, probably would be at least fourth place in the league right now. Um, you know, the, the question is going to be, can they, when you've got one of the players and I, first off, I don't think anybody should be ripping Bako for, or Baycott, sorry, um, should be ripping Baycott for this, but he, he outright admitted at the end of that Duke game, they were getting scared. They, they, there was very much a sense of, oh no, not again uh, on this. And, you know, we rip, we rip people for admitting that they're scared and all that stuff. And yet at the same time we ask questions and we want honest answers. Um, but you know, it's difficult when that's the type of situation that you're in. And especially now that Brooks has the yips at the free throw line, if it, the game is at close at all, any coach, even Manning at this point, will see with the clock under about four minutes ago to go, they're going to find Brooks. They're going to start fouling him. Uh, they're going to start, they're going to find uh, Baycott and start fouling him um, and give themselves a chance. And so until they can, until they can overcome that and until they can consistently essentially get over that hurdle uh, every game at this point is just going to be in doubt they absolutely can do it they've got a lot of confidence to build off of from Saturday it's just a question of whether or not um, Roy can continue to inspire this team enough to say hey listen you know the season's not over we still have we still have something to build for I would agree and you know what Nothing's really going to surprise me with this team at this point. They could go six and three down the stretch. They could go three and six. Um, I guess to wrap it up, you know, I, I like to think that uh, the Duke game was kind of an indication that things can get better or are better. And you just have a team with serious holes that were never really going to be solved overnight. And hey, you know what? Maybe we have reason to be optimistic. Jake. What do you have coming to TarHillBlog.com this week? Because uh, this has not been fun. I have, you know, I have enjoyed the company, but I've really not enjoyed uh, doing this podcast. But uh, we had to do it for the people. Yeah, we had to do it for the people. I like the way you put that. Um, uh, this week, uh, I, so I handled three things to watch for uh, for Wake Forest. And then uh, I had the uh, Gavin Blackwell football commitment today as well. And then I'll have the player of the game on Wednesday um going forward and and we'll see what else might pop up if i get some time to get some inspiration but uh, that's what i have going on this week hey some inspiration is always a good thing uh al what about yourself uh i will be writing what we've learned uh, after the virginia game this weekend i think two games post duke especially with the rematch against virginia and virginia in the state that they're in right now um, I think that I think by that point we're going to have a good idea of what to expect from this team for the rest of the season. Um, you know, and around this time is normally where I'm I'm writing about their NCAA hopes, their seeding hopes, their ACC hopes. Um, you know, and it, it just it's it's just all kind of down the drain at this point. Uh, the the biggest thing that team is just hoping for is to finish out of uh, finish out of the bottom four. Um, so. You know, it's just uh, just kind of carrying on and seeing what else they can learn from this season and see if they can at least get into some sort of postseason play. Yeah, um, that's that's a fairly depressing way to look at it. But, you know, we, we've <laughs> definitely been on this podcast and said, well, maybe, you know, maybe if we go five and two over the stretch uh, early in ACC season where the heels went 
two and five and lost uh, five inferior opponents, but opponents, opponents. But at this point, guys, it kind of is what it is. So, um, listeners, we thank you all for joining us on what was not really a fun podcast to do. Um, as for me, I'm going to drag Jake back into this thing. We're going to talk about some good news on the UNC football recruiting front uh, sometime later this week. Until then, y'all know what to do. Go ahead and subscribe. Go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read it on the air. Uh, we did that with the last podcast. Until next time, keep it locked and go Heels. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical.